This is Neil Rockine. Welcome to another edition of Killer Cross-Examination, the podcast where we talk to some of the top trial lawyers in the country about their, their practices, their habits, their styles, their approaches. Um, and uh, this week's episode is no different. DeAndre Grant, I'm so thrilled that you're here on the Killer Cross-Examination podcast. Welcome. Good to be here. Okay, so... Um, just by, I, I, I have to disclose that I've heard your name and I've seen your name on uh, so many different things because you, you're a real innovator and a leader, I know, in DUI and DWI defense. And that's how I first came to know your name. So I just want those to know, um, I, as soon as I saw you commenting on the Ken Paxson impeachment trial, I was like, wait, I know who she is, and then thought she'd be a fantastic guest to have on the Killer Cross-Examination podcast, so welcome. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. All right, so tell me about your, what is your practice um, uh, like? What kind of cases do you handle? How did you get into criminal defense? Well, um, this would be our thir my 30th year practicing. I actually started as a prosecutor um, at the Dallas DA's office in 1994. Um, and then when I left, opened my own firm and it's had various incarnations over the years. But currently we have six offices across Texas and um, quite a, an amazing team of trial lawyers. We handle everything from traffic tickets all the way up to federal criminal work, um, murder cases in state court. I mean, you name it, we run the gamut. And we cover, I mean, Texas is a big state, but we cover a bit, pretty big chunk of it. And um, my personal practice is limited to cases that involve allegations of intoxication. So that might be intoxication manslaughter, intoxication assault, DWI, whatever. And then I also do a lot of forensic consulting with other lawyers on their cases where there's intoxication as an issue. Give me a little background. What are the, what's, what's the ground like in in Texas for, you know, we always think of Texas here in the Midwest as the place where, you know, there's capital punishment and, you know, there's, uh, you know, it seems like a, a rough and tumble sort of, um, at least that's, that's the impression, um, hard edge, conservative, um, you know, um, uh, I, I, for whatever reason, I just, I picture like gallows and, and, uh, you know, and like cowboys. Capital, <laughs> cowboys and capital punishment by like, by, by shooting. Um, so I guess I'm, what is it like on the ground there as a criminal defense lawyer? Texas is very different depending on where you are in the state. So various parts of the state I always tell people, like, depends on what county you're in, what kingdom you're in. So some parts of the state are not quite as conservative as others. If you're practicing law in Austin, where we have an office, um, it's a very different world than if you're in Waco, McLennan County, where we also have an office. <laughs> um, worlds apart, completely different. So it, it really just depends. You have to know your jurisdiction and your jurors will be very different depending on where you are in the state. What are the laws like in terms of so you're you're you personally focus on in, in on cases involving allegations of intoxication or that have an element of intoxication? Mm -hmm. um, what are the laws like in Texas in in that regard? Well, you know, marijuana is still illegal in Texas, even though it has been legalized in some form 
on all states bordering us. So there's a lot of drug, you know, stuff going on in Texas, because if you if you go to Oklahoma and you're trying to drive to New Mexico and you're coming through Texas with your gummies, you know, there's a really good chance you're going to get arrested. So we deal with a lot of that. And then there's a lot of DWI enforcement related to drugs um, because of that. Uh, so the uh, police are very focused on, and this is really more of a nationwide trend, but we see a lot of drug DWI cases. So um, how did you choose to get into that area? Did it find you or did you find it? Um, well, you know, you start off as a prosecutor in, uh, in misdemeanor court normally in Texas, at least. And um, so I was trying a lot of DWIs as a prosecutor. Then when I opened my own firm, I actually didn't handle DWIs for a long time. And I think it kind of found me. It, it's a, I mean, it's a big area of the law. A lot of people get arrested for it. I ended up really kind of doing a deep dive. It got trained in breath alcohol analysis way back. Um, and then also in blood analysis before it was even really the main form of evidence in Texas like it is now. And then I went back to school and got my master's degree in pharmaceutical science and a graduate certificate in forensic toxicology. So that sort of launched me into my little niche of intoxication. Wait. So you're you're working as a as a practicing lawyer mm -hmm. and then you went uh, you 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 didn't close your practice while you went back to school, I presume. You continued to practice and you went back for Give me the master's again. Was a master's in, in pharmaceutical a, chemistry? Pharmaceutical science with a concentration in forensic toxicology. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and where did you do that? University of Florida. Um, that would have taken me about 10 years to complete. <laughs> it took me three. <laughs> it did take three because I couldn't go full time, obviously. Um, and then you continued and to pursue a, and you pursued a doctorate. Uh, no, no, a uh, graduate certificate, which oh, is graduate certificate. a master's. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's I pretty amazing. I ran out of steam. I, if I'd gone another probably two semesters, I could have ended up with two masters, but I ran out of steam and said, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. And so educate, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of this. I know we have a, we have a, um, we have a, a friend, a colleague in, in common, Mike Nichols, who's mm -hmm. extremely bright. Uh, and uh, has really taken to the defense of OWI, DWI, drug defense, uh, you know, drug, drug driving type defenses here in Michigan. I mean, he's uh, extremely bright. Um, so, but, but tell me a, a bit about the intersection there. Why the intersection between the science, the the degree, um, and why it was so important for you as a lawyer to to pursue both the degrees and to become more knowledgeable in that science for your particular niche practice. There's a lot of bad science that I call it government science that comes into evidence in criminal trials all over the country. Not this isn't a Texas specific thing. And um, I wanted to know more than the so-called state's experts. So when I was cross-examining them, I could do so more effectively. And so that sort of was my goal at the time. I didn't know it was going to turn into this sort of consulting practice on the side because I end up teaching all over the country because of that. And it just sort of morphed, but definitely, you know, people get on the witness stand and make claims about science that um, 
that are just not true. So you've got somebody that can cross-examine them with like, okay, now wait a minute. That's not exactly the way it is. I mean, I, I really think if you look at everything that took place during the pandemic, I mean, everyone was throwing their the word science around um, mm -hmm. without any real basis for what they were saying in many cases. And so it, it's not that different with evidence in criminal trials. People who maybe don't have the training or education get on the witness stand and get to say things that are not necessarily 100% true. So maybe you need a lawyer that can effectively cross-examine. Right. So I assume you've seen both sides of it then. I assume you've seen lawyers that are unable to cross-examine those experts or those witnesses on the science or attempt yeah. to do a pretty ham-handed job. Um, and then you've seen some lawyers who do an excellent job, I presume, at uh, at being able to corner the the state scientists. Yeah, Mike so Nichols being one of them. <laughs> he is. He's he's excellent at it, and I've watched him do it. And he's um, uh, we've had several cases together, and uh, he's extremely he he described DU, DUI defense really well, actually, when about why he chose to get into that field after returning to the practice, coming to the practice of law. I think he was a newscaster or a journalist for for a, a while, um, and he he said because it involves you know one criminal defense, cross examination, investigation, science, um, they may seem like when you look at the charge, it may seem different than a murder case or a, a kidnapping case, but the fact is that it involves so many different facets and so many different elements all packaged into one. Um, into one case. And I thought that was a pretty interesting way for him to describe why he was was attracted to that area. So. It's very true. And, you know, um, I've tried pretty much every offense you can think of. And the DWI defense is really one of the hardest things you can do. I mean, it's more difficult in many cases than a murder case. The, there's so much going on with that where you've got layperson testimony, you've got a police officer's opinion, You've got science almost always involved in some form or fashion. So you don't always have, if you have an assault case, you're, you've got someone saying they were assaulted. Perhaps you have some video, perhaps you don't. Maybe you have a witness, maybe you don't. But there's not always a lot of science involved in most crimes. But do you, How do you think we got to the point that there's so much, I mean, I, I, I'll call it junk science. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, if you don't want to call it junk science, it's certainly... Um, it seems like it's dollar store science in so many ways. Yeah. It's dumbed down. It's fast. They try to make it easy and fast and digestible. Um, and as, as you know, science is, is never fast. It's never perfect. It's not easy. It's not digestible. It's complicated. Um, but that intersection of the law and science seems where it's somehow the courts have accepted so much I mean, just dollar dime store science. I think more so in criminal court than civil court. I think in civil court, which is sad because usually in civil court, where we've got money at stake, mm -hmm. they seem to have a little stricter rules about what gets thrown into as so-called scientific evidence. But in criminal court, we do play a little fast and loose with, with I mean, I've seen it my whole career with judges letting things in that are just really really questionable and it's an expediency thing it is also i think a product of the fact that there's no forensic science education typically in law school so you've got judges that come up through the ranks as attorneys they obviously went to law school 
and they have no forensic background. So they're trying to call balls and strikes on an area that they have no, no knowledge of. And, and really, there should be more of a push to teach a little bit of just some basic science in law school because it Im impacts also civil cases. It's not just criminal. What do you think about, um, so you, you, you have a consulting practice as well, and I know that you're involved in um, national organization actually teaching lawyers about um, um, different criminal defense techniques and approaches and science. Uh, what's the name of that organization? It's the DUI Defense Lawyers Association, which is actually where I am right now. I'm, at, I'm in Atlanta. We're putting on our national seminar this weekend. Well, I appreciate you um, jo joining me and uh, taking time away from that. What got you into that? What got you into to, to, to forming an organization and traveling around to teach other lawyers about uh, cross-examination, uh, trials, science, forensic techniques, et cetera? You know, I think it's just another for, sort of falling into it thing. I don't know that it was, was never a master plan. Um, I started getting invited to seminars around the country Oh, it's been 15 years ago and um, teaching all kinds of areas. I do a lot of teaching on jury selection. That's a, a big one. And then from having lawyers inviting me to their seminars, I started being invited by police associations to come talk to police officers about being cross-examined and, and effective courtroom testimony and then I got involved with the Borkenstein drug course, which is the national or it's not. It's the international course on drug to driving that is put on each year for states experts. So it's police officers and lab analysts. And I go out there and and teach them how to um, be cross examined and, and testify effectively for the state. Um, and then the organization, we there was a pretty good sizable network of us around the country that of which Mike is one of them. Mm -hmm. that wanted a, a a new bar association that was focused on driving under the influence of you know alcohol or drugs and so we formed this bar association 10 years ago and it's an international organization we have a lot of canadian members and we have two seminars a year we have about 900 members and it's it's really a great group lots of good information gets transferred at our seminars. <laughs> what do the state experts say or do when they see you on the other side of a case? Do they, do they fold in, do they kind of throw their cards on the table or do they, do they say, bring it in? Um, I think most of the ones I regularly cross-examine know me very well. Um, I do think having just sat in on other people's trials, maybe perhaps while I was waiting for a break to talk to the judge or something. I do think they might testify a little bit differently if I'm cross-examining them or one of my associates, because they're extremely effective as well, when we're doing it, because they know we're going to be coming at them with a lot of evidence-based stuff. We just finished a trial with one of my associates, Mackenzie Zerati, where the analyst told her after the trial, I learned a lot in this case, and I'm going to do better next time. So, um, yeah, that we do, we do have kind of a reputation. That's where you got to actually go to the analyst and say, can you say that again? Am I help him please <laughs> yeah, louder and make sure yeah. you're not too close to the camera so I can 
put this on our my website. Well, I we, imagine you have. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead, please. Can we put it on the record, please? Yeah, that's exactly. Tell me, because I, I have to imagine you have, we, we all have war stories, um, you know, in, in criminal defense, because we're, we're in court and dealing with judges and prosecutors and experts and um, complainants and, you know, clients and, and so many different cases day in and day out. Um, share with me, first of all, like, I want to hear some of your war stories about, you know, criminal defense and about cross-examination and particularly your, your, your area. Um, but how would you, before we get there, how would you characterize your style of, of lawyering? I mean, are you bombastic? Are you, are you more cerebral? Where would you put yourself on that spectrum and how would you describe yourself? I'm not Busby. We were talking about it. I'm, I'm not, and, and, you know, honestly, I think, and I, and I, I would tell this to a, a group of lawyers, I think you have to be aware of where you practice and what is, what might be acceptable. It's like we were talking about Busby. He practices in Houston. He's a, a larger than life person. He can be very loud and bombastic and, and, and it works for him. He's ex extremely successful. If I were doing what he was doing, I don't think it would be taken as well from jurors in Texas, especially in a lot of the rural counties where I practice. That would not, that wouldn't go over well. So I, I would, I somewhat have a softer approach. I think that um, I sort of wait to see how the witness is responding to me, and if they get particularly. Uh, rude or aggressive on the witness stand because they're angry to be cross-examined often the meaner they get the nicer I get because I'm mm. and I will teach officers this I'm like the meaner you get the nicer I get the less credibility you have I look like the reasonable person and you look like you've got something to hide so I wait and see what the witness is going to be like some of them I know so I know what to expect I also think I'm kind of a death by a thousand cuts where I because I had an attorney describe me that way one time. That's the only reason I even think thought of that, where I just go in and just poke holes in lots of things that are going on that they did in their investigation that were incorrect. I usually start off because I'm doing a lot of science-based cross-examination on what would be best practices. Like in the perfect world, what would be the best way to conduct this form of analysis and walk them down that path? And then we switch over to, okay, now let's look and see what you did in this case mm -hmm. so that we can point out all the ways that they didn't follow best practices. It's um, pretty effective. It's, <laughs> it's, it sounds effective. As you were talking, I was imagining, uh, you know, showing them what, what, what would a well-stocked kitchen look like? You know what I mean? With, you know what I mean? And then, well, let's take a look at yours and then you open it up and they've got, you know, like some salt and maybe some pepper and, uh, and some, you know, stale mayonnaise. So, um, which was a, just that, that was just a description as you were describing it. I was like picturing what analogy could I use as you were describing it to have them, you know, kind of walk, walk them into that. I mean, it's not a trap, but it really is. You're telling them what, because they have to tell you what best practice would be. And then of course you probably already know what they haven't done. And so you're prepared to kind of point those things out. Right. And they cut um, a lot of corners. You know, you mentioned government or police science earlier. Yeah. Um, they, they tend to cut a lot of corners because of backlogs and they're trying to get through a lot of things. Um, funding sometimes can be an issue. 
and just trying to get the most amount of samples analyzed that they can as quickly as possible. So time often there is cutting of corners. And I've often used the example if you're baking a cake, it really depends on what my jury is like. If I'm in a place where that would probably ring true to them, then I might talk about baking a cake. And if you're trying to make a lemon chess pie and you use all the ingredients to make your lemon chess pie, but you forget the lemon, you end up with a pie, but you don't end up with a lemon chess pie. And I actually use that example because my dad did that one time. Well, he's a chef and it was a big <laughs> joke in our family that he left out the lemon. But you do end up with something. You end up with a, a final product, but it's not what you need. So science is that way as well. There are steps and you have to follow all the steps. You can't just leave out one because it's not convenient and expect to get a true and accurate result. And I you think you can understand that. I mean, it's a simple I, I, concept. It, it it is, but you know, jurors come into things with their prejudices, and um, that is sort of a, a something you were talking about that you spend a lot of time talking to lawyers about jury selection. So Very is important. that something? Is that something that you do? You get jury selection first of all. Do you get lawyer directed jury selection in in Texas? And um, have you? Um, is that something that you? that you spend a lot of time sort of thinking about and then applying in your practice? Absolutely. We do get jury selection in Texas called voir dire, not voir dire in the French terminology. We call it voir dire. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And, but we do get to do that. And yeah, whatever your theme is, and it's the same thing I've taught all my associates, you have to have a theme. You got to be going somewhere in this trial. And actually with Paxton, I think that their theme was missing. I said that throughout my entire critique of, of the state's case on that. There was no, there was no theme, but the, and the defense had a theme, but I didn't feel like the state did, but whichever side you're on, you have to have a theme and you have to start working about or talking about that theme and jury selection to the jury and get them to understand the concepts that you're going to be presenting to them. So if it's sloppy work, um, you know, not following standard operating procedures or whatever. Talk about why that matters. Find someone on the jury that's involved in some career that involves measurement. And let's talk about the importance of calibration. Does it calibration matter if you're, you know, working in instrumentation and get someone on the jury talking about that? So you've got to have a theme and lay the groundwork in jury selection. You can't just pull all this out in cross-examination. You ever sat there and just got jurors who are looking at you with, you know, the retiree crossed arms you know what I mean looking at you like uh no answers yeah and those are the people you want to talk to because I mean (laughs) I if I have somebody with their arms crossed in jury selection I'll point it out and say hey your arms are crossed and you're kind of glaring at me did I do something to upset you is it are you not do you not want to be here I mean tell let's talk about it um and see what's you know and a lot of times they'll be like no I was thinking about such and such I'm like okay let's talk about that so Jury selection is supposed to be a conversation. I think that um, it can be very dull, especially when prosecutors just sort of have a list of questions they're going to ask and they don't always listen to the answer. I don't have a script. I get up and just start talking about general concepts and see where the conversation goes and make them, you know, I want them to all be my new best friends. So let's let's mm-hmm. chat. I've had, so I know that a lot of um lawyers tell young lawyers to be yourself in trial and to be yourself in front of the jury and i, I i've often 
struggled with that concept, not because because we have we have varieties of ourselves, right? I mean, we have different we have different emotions depending on the circumstance, and so um, very few people can just be like Jerry Spence and kind of get up there and you know take a moment and kind of collect yourself and then you know begin with this you know kind of this this aura of you know oh you're and seems like he would just turn everybody in his favor. Um, and I, I think that when people try that, that they sometimes fall flat on their face. It appears phony. They're, they're trying to be what they want to be their best self, but is really right. not who they are. Right. Right. And I think um, who I am depends also on what is the makeup of my jury panel. So Tell me what you mean by that. Okay, so if I'm in an area where I have a lot of retired CEOs and engineers and school teachers, which I'm thinking of one county in particular, that's the very common makeup of my jury panel. I'm going to probably speak about things in a little bit higher level of a little bit more sophisticated. I don't know if that's even the right terminology, but I'm going to go after a lot more scientific concepts and stuff in jury selection. Whereas if I'm in a place where I have a completely different type of jury panel, um, a different educational level, um, different types of jobs, I'm probably going to do some different kinds of transferable concepts and in, in talking about things to get, because remember the goal of jury selection is to get the jurors to reveal themselves. It's for mm -hmm. them to tell you what they really, really think, as opposed to telling you what they think the, the judge wants them to say, or they want, or you want them to say, I don't want them to please me. I want them to tell me what they really think. So I have to create a, an environment where they can do that without feeling. Do you get, like do you get a lot of four cost challenges from jurors? Um, yeah, but I, the way I like to do it is I like them to tell me they need to cause themselves. I oh, like no, that's what I mean. I mean, because, <laughs> you know, judges try to save, you know, the save. The, oh, the yeah. Rehabilitate. Judge goes into the phone booth and out comes, what? You're telling me that you can't be fair? You, you, you're you you're going to take the law from me, right? And if I give you the law and whatever the law is, you're going to follow it. You're going to follow what I tell you, right? So you can be fair and impartial, can't you? I mean, I've seen so many judges try to try to save some juror, which, which mystifies me. Just, you already know, just, just let them go. The, the, I bust a go. lot of panels. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes I have judges that'll bring a whole bunch of extra jurors because of that. Um, I remember we had one, John Cook is an attorney friend of mine. And we try a lot of cases together. We had, oh, I think it was like 96 jurors or something like that in one county. And we ended up with six at the end of the, <laughs> the end of jury selection. And the judge steam was coming out of his ears. There's no way he's going to be able to rehabilitate enough people. It was actually pretty funny. But yeah, the um, what I do to inoculate against a judge trying to rehabilitate someone by pressuring them to say the right thing is I'll often say, are you telling me what you really think or, or what you think I want to hear? And if someone else asks you the same question, for instance, if the judge asks you this question, are you going to change your what you have to say or change your opinion to please the judge? Are you going to stick to your guns? And people will mm -hmm. be like, oh, I'm going to stick to my guns. Well, then now it's a challenge. So if the right. judge calls them up and tries to get them to switch, they'll be like, no, no, 
because then they'll look bad if they change their mind. Plus, you know, one of the things uh, when someone has said, well, what about uh, the judges said, well, you'll follow the laws, I give it to you, right? I mean, and they, one of the things that I've often, before the judge gets a chance to to do that, I will, if I think that that it's coming, I'll sometimes ask them about to make a pledge. I want you to make a pledge right now, right? Like sight unseen, you 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 promise to you know imagine you you have a proposal and someone you propose to to marry somebody and you're like look I'm not going to tell you what the oaths are I'm not going to tell you what your commitment is I'm not going to tell you where you're going to live I'm not going to tell you what the other person is about but you're going to commit right and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna to to follow the oath is no I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm, no, I'd like to know more. Right. Of course. You know what I mean? Because yep. in other ways, I know you've probably done the same thing where you actually encourage them. You'll say like, those are, I mean, you came into this courtroom with those beliefs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not going to just let me talk you out of them. Right. I mean, you're not going to let anybody just talk you out of them, are you? And then they are. And then they, of course, you know, said, no, 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 those are my heartfelt beliefs. And I believe those. And then you judge have at it. See if you can see if you can shake them loose on, yeah, <laughs> on then that. You know, their heels are dug in. It becomes a psychological thing. I mean, they're like, I've already said this is what I think. I'm not changing it. Another thing I do is um, I use my dad a lot as an example. So if I have a particularly sort of like hard nosed juror that's like, you know, I think that if you have anything to drink, you shouldn't drive. You could get an Uber or something along those lines. I'll be like, you know what? That's exactly what my dad thinks. And I, I, I will bring that in to like, okay, it to be like, I'm not offended that you're mm -hmm. saying that to me. I, my father says the same thing to me. I also use him as an example. My dad's a big believer in, um, at least in the world of jury selection, he's a big believer in um, if you are accused of a crime, you should testify. Like you should get up and say, I didn't do it, you know? And so when I'm talking about, you know, the right to remain silent and everything, a lot of times I'll bring him in and say, my dad thinks everybody should get up and just say, Hey, I didn't do it. If you didn't do it, say you didn't do it. And why would you not do that? I mean, then talk about the pros and cons of that, but I use him a lot. He doesn't know that. He probably watched this podcast and like, <laughs> I had no idea you're pulling me into all your jury selection. It's um, well, because those are good. Those are those are, first of all, they're endearing examples. Um, and th th they're examples that when you use them, you're you're sharing the relatable. Mm -hmm. um, I think so many people come into court and expect lawyers to just attack. And even I watched one lawyer attack prospective jurors during a jury selection. And I was like, you can't leave that one. You, you can't leave the juror that you just wasn't even a polite challenge. You can't yeah. do that. Yeah. And the second is the whole rest of the panel. I mean, if you were, it, I thought if you're conducting yourself a certain way and then you do to whatever, buttons get pushed and you attack this juror boy i mean don't the rest of the jurors look at you and think like kind of what a phony i mean you know that you were up here being all gracious with the rest of us and this person just happened to say something that ticked you off and you you went off on it was really um i don't know if the lawyer meant to do it or if it just if it just came 
I, you know, I think he may, maybe he tripped over his own feet when he was trying to find being charitable, when he was uh -huh. talking about, you know, burdens and where, where people start and where you start in the trial. And, um, she just wasn't getting the analogy he was throwing down and then he got a little surly. Um, no, I, young lawyers often make that mistake. I, I have a, a, an attorney that worked for me at one point that was picking a jury and wanted to argue points with prospective jurors. And I pulled them aside afterwards. And I was like, listen, you understand that you're, you're not trying to convince them. You're trying to get them to tell you what they really think. So you can make educated decisions about who you want to strike from this panel. Um, you don't want to be mean to them or challenge them. In fact, what you really want is to know who else on the jury panel thinks what this guy thinks. Is there anyone? Oh, that, thank you so much for sharing that. Is there anyone else who thinks that? And let's get them to raise their hand. <laughs> so people they're like, okay, I now I know. Now I know who thinks that. Yeah. I what mean, do you, I it's a rookie mistake. What do you tell the, this guy was no rookie. So, I know. But, <laughs> he was no rookie. He's doing quite well, but that one snippet of, 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 it felt more like cross than it did uh, voir dire or voir dire, as you guys would say. Um, so do you tell the jurors in jury selection, do you talk about what cross-examination is going to look like in your cases? Oh, yes. I usually say, you know, um, people watch a lot of television and they think that what they've seen on, I don't even know, whatever's the current law show, because they send, there tends to be a lot of them is the way it really is, that there's a lot of drama in criminal trials and um, people yell and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I said, the reality is it's not like the thriller in Manila. We're not going to be duking it out in this courtroom, um, but the state's going to have, is going to question a witness and then we're going to question the witness and we're going to ask them questions. And what I, the way I couch it is I normally say, I'm going to ask them questions I think you want the answer to. So I'm going to try to ask all the questions that you might have in your head to see if you get the answers. That's a good way of looping them back in and keeping yeah, them. It's for you. I'm really working for you. I'm just going to ask <laughs> for you. <laughs> During the trial, are you, are you watching the jurors? Um, and, and tell me about that. Are you watching like their reactions, their, their, expressions with furrowed you know brows what are you looking for uh and how do you do it well did you have you ever done any training with terry mccarthy cross are you familiar with that at all i i with the i i'm familiar with it i haven't so i um, haven't done training with them mccarthy cross which i've done quite a bit of training over the years with terry once he was when he was still teaching he's retired isn't this called look good cross or is that look good cross yeah. it's one word yeah. cross and everything yeah and one of the things that you do in that form of cross-examination is you watching, you're looking at the jurors while you're questioning or making statements, which is really what you're doing, um, and not at the witness. So I tend to do a lot of that, though, when you're doing scientific cross-examination, it's a little hard to do it that way. And so it's kind of a hybrid. I do some where I'm looking at the jurors and some where I'm a little bit not, but I always have someone else in the courtroom with like one of our interns watching the jury and making notes so that at a break he can say okay this juror is really paying attention to this or this juror was not impressed with this or throughout the trial so I've got some other set of eyes watching them I do the same mm -hmm. so I have um I've done 
uh, I spent some time actually um, on this same podcast talking to uh, Roger Dodd, who, um, you know, with uh, Poser and Dodd, the, the, the Bible, the, you know, I mean, the textbook on, on cross-examination and their approach to it. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the things that I end up doing, I think, are things that are taught um, and, you know, in, in different places. I'm not saying that I, that I just happen to, you know, like I'm goodwill hunting and just happen to, you know, stumble on it. But um, I'll tell you that one of the things that I'm that that I, I, I there are two things I'm one I'm going to share with you that is a thing that I've done that I always feel like this happened in the land in, in several trials of mine. It's happened in several trials. I get to a point where we've picked we're we're making progress in jury selection. And there's a juror that I have a like juror six. And I'm thinking like there's something about juror six that I just don't feel great about. You know, like and we've had decent interaction now and I feel like they're answering questions and they're you know they're responding and but something you know just a feeling and a couple times I've like turned to my client or I have another associate in the courtroom as well you know helping me pick the jury and watching the jury for the same reasons you do I'll say so uh you know number six I don't know I got that feeling you know and then they're like ah you know I think she's okay I like your background or I like his background and he's responsive. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm telling you almost to a one. When I leave, when, when we leave him on there, the whole trial, I spend sitting there sort of staring at, you know, not staring, but, but peeking enough at number six and going, damn it, this thing's going to hang. Cause you know, like, well, ironically, we've had four hung juries in a row in the past three months. So, yeah, it happens. I mean, they, you have stealth jurors that, and, and interestingly. And I didn't listen to my gut. I knew. We didn't listen. I knew, I I, I heard something that I wanted to hear. I got talked into it. I decided to, you know, that's just not how we do it. Like if your gut is telling you you're, it's not, it's not happening. You know, I'm getting talked into it or talking myself into it. You know how that happens. It's like talking yourself into a case that, you know, I'm going to win this case. And the second you show up, they got, you know, a stack of evidence. It's, you know, mile high, 14 can, witnesses who have observed, you know, your, your client's confession is caught on tape. He's in the hallway telling them how he did it. You know, in the meantime, <laughs> you're like, why well, I think I could win this thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. been there. So, so tell me about your, so your cross-examination. So they are, they, they, I know they range, they must range from very technical stuff, right? To um, when you go a, a police officer not you know, making mistakes or errors or um, how do you keep the jury engaged as you're, as, as you're cross-examining um, on some of that very technical, that technical information? And if you don't mind, maybe give me a, give me a story or two. So I think that it, well, if you're cross-examining a police officer, then, and it's about a DWI investigation, you're going to be pointing out once again, what they were trained, how they were trained to conduct the investigation and to administer what are called standardized field sobriety tests. And then what they actually did in this particular case. So you will walk through each test, taking it apart and saying, you know, 
you, one thing you have to understand about field sobriety tests, if you don't know anything about them, is that they're standardized, which means you're supposed to do them the same every time. And they're also very subjective. So what is considered a clue or a failing mark on a field sobriety test, it's really up to the police officer's perception. Whereas you may be watching a video of the exact same thing and saying, I don't see that at all. So that's a lot of what goes on in cross-examination is saying, you're saying they did this, but we're looking at the video and I'm not seeing that. Are you seeing that? Where is it? Can you point it out to me? And, and things like that. Um, I tell police officers when I'm telling them about how to testify, don't make ridiculous statements like the fact that everyone can do field sobriety tests because they're easy, because it's not true. You have jurors that probably couldn't do them if you got them up in the courtroom to do them right then. You don't know who's had knee replacement, who's waiting on knee replacement, who has had spinal surgery. You know, I have no idea what people's capabilities are, so they're not that easy to do. So don't make ridiculous statements like that. Um, the hardest police officer to cross-examine to cross-examine is the nice one. The nice officer who admits their mistakes and says, yeah, you know what? I, I didn't do that exactly right. Jurors tend to feel sorry for them and like them and want to, you know, go on their side, I guess, in, in voting. Um, mean police officers who are rude and refuse to answer questions. Those are great officers too. Like I said earlier, they're great to cross-examine because the more, the meaner they are, the nicer I sound, <laughs> the more reasonable I sound because I'm playing against their type. So cross-examination of police officers is the most fun. When it comes to- Have you had gotcha moments? I know we don't, yeah. you know, we've, I, of course, a previous generation thinks of, um, you know, Raymond Burr playing uh, Perry Mason and a mm -hmm. gotcha moment. And then, you know, everybody, uh, now maybe they think of, I don't know, law and order or think of, uh, you know, Boston legal or some, you know, of course the trials are all condensed and every question is interesting. And, you know, the judges are all exceedingly fair, which of course is not the universe that I live in. Uh, probably not the one that you live in either. Um, but some jurors sort of expect the gotcha moment. Have you had any, have you had any moments where you're just like, did he just say that? Like, Yes, I've had police officers admit at the end of me asking them a series of questions about one particular field sobriety test, just say, I'll say, isn't it true you just did this completely wrong? And I've had some police officers say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> do it right at all. And I'll be like, well, so would you agree with me that the jurors really shouldn't use this as really evidence of anything? Yeah, yeah, I agree, Ms. Grant, I didn't do it right. I love that, so, yeah. 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 I've had those moments before where police officers just admit, yeah. And I also, sometimes the police officer may not know everything about your client that you know, like some sort of physical challenges that your client may have or, or health challenges. And when they realize that, I'll be like, had you known at the time about this, about X, would you, do you think your opinion would have changed? And sometimes they'll say, yes, yes. If I had known that, I think I would have looked at what they were doing a little bit differently. Like if I knew they had suffered a traumatic brain injury in the past, I would have thought their slowness was, I wouldn't have necessarily thought it was intoxication. So you do have moments where police officers will just admit, but then you have police officers that won't admit anything and they actually end up looking ridiculous. So I do have, as far as aha moments though, um, I think it's really more in the science vein. We've had 
off I'm a lab analyst get caught doing some pretty shady stuff in trial where um they I don't know if it's necessarily had to admit but it got exposed that they were doing some things they weren't supposed to be doing and and that can be pretty dramatic I mean we had one analyst that ended up no longer able to testify in any county in Texas because of some things that were uncovered about his practices in the lab. So it happens. We do. I think I, I think I, so just in an effort to, to um, learn more about you and um, you know, I, I did a Google search at one point of your name and then was looking up news articles and some of the news articles that came up were articles about, about controversies and um i'll call them controversies in and scandals in in labs with lab analysts what are the kinds of things that you've um that you've uncovered or commented on or have even caught some um some lab techs doing that i mean those are moments that are like those are watershed moments in in not just a trial but that can actually change the direction of the way that a county or a prosecutor's office or a police department conducts its, um, you know, its its scientific investigations. Uh, it's sample switching. So you will have an analyst conducting an analysis of, say, 40 different blood samples, 40 different people. We call them unknowns, 40 unknowns. And then when in the process of doing it, samples get switched. So, for example, the blood alcohol concentration for me gets attributed to you and yours gets attributed to me. And it happens in every lab. It's just a question of whether they catch it. And it also becomes an issue of whether they disclose it. So the big, one of the big scandals we've had, because we've had a few in Dallas County that impacted a whole lot of other counties because this lab covered many, I think 13 counties in Texas, um, was sample switching that was not disclosed and then it came out through a series of um, disclosures and cross-examinations by various defense attorneys, one of them being me, where essentially the, the lab analysts lied on the witness stand about having never switched samples in the lab when they in fact had, and it had been documented, but we didn't know it at the time. And when then we subsequently found that out, um, it became a big, big issue with this person then testifying where we have transcripts saying, You've lied about this in the past, but now you're admitting it and, and that sort of thing. And it ultimately resulted in a judge stopping a trial and saying, um, I think that I need to appoint an attorney wow. at this point and, and you need to maybe take the fifth and not say it's incredible. Yeah. So it incredible. Happens. Definitely. Dramatic. It's unfortunate. Well, it impacts a lot of people. It infected, I think it impacted 20,000 cases. And it impacts those cases, and of course, it <clears throat> it sets in the minds of those who are already distrusting of of the government kind of stranglehold on science. It it just it, it only feeds the fire, right? I mean, it just yes. it makes it harder for makes it harder. We also had a, another scandal where um, they were drawing blood in the jail as opposed to taking the person to like a hospital to draw their blood. And they were testifying that this place was a clean environment where they were drawing the blood, but it was a horribly filthy environment. And we ended up having a whistleblower 
come forward who had retired from the jail who started testifying in hearings about what the room was really like. And at that point, the um, the state decided to no longer offer blood tests where they had been drawn at this jail, and they changed the whole way blood was analyzed. They redid the room. They, they eventually started taking the people back to the hospital. So it, it made a huge difference, and it impacted thousands of cases. I think it was 2,000 at the, by the time it was all over, 2,000 cases. Why do you think Texas has produced so many of you sort of larger than life, legendary kind of nationally known lawyers? It seems that there's a, um, it just seems like the state is sort of, you know, a, I don't want to say a breeding ground, but it seems like it's been a breeding ground of just larger than Characters. life lawyers. Huh? <laughs> We're characters. I mean, I, you saw a lot of them at, on in the Paxton impeachment hearing. I mean, some of our our real character lawyers and well, real well-known lawyers were there, at least for the Houston side of the state. Um, you get out to Lubbock, there's some there's some big characters out there too, certainly in the North Texas area, which is where I am. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's the it's just the way Texas is. We have a lot of larger than life people. Um, and we we turn out some some real characters. Busby is a perfect example of that. I mean, he's he's very much the bombastic, loud, effective, um, very smart, thinks on his feet very quickly, lawyer. Uh, we have a lot of those in Dallas, quite frankly, on the civil and criminal side. So we definitely, I, I think it's- also, so you, you brought up a couple of times Dallas and Houston. What's mm -hmm. the, so, so I know, I mean, Jerry Goldstein and Cynthia Orr from uh, San Antonio, mm -hmm. fantastic lawyers. Mm -hmm. um jack zimmerman is uh another you know part of the legendary you know kind of you know cowboy lawyer he was an awesome guy to to speak with as well wonderful um what 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 what's the difference between the different jurisdictions so i know you said that a couple of times you got houston versus dallas so you know tell me the dallas is is what and houston is is what well, remember, Houston is the oil uh, place, and and uh, Houston is its own sort of part of Texas. It, it's big, landmass-wise, it's very large. Um, the city of Houston is huge, and they turn out a lot of really, I mean, Mark Thiessen, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's about as big a character as you'll ever meet, and very successful lawyer, um, Where's all, you never know what kind of crazy outfit he's going to wear. Uh, we have Lydia Clay Jackson, who is known for always wearing hats, not cowboy hats, like fedoras. Like she's known for that. She's famous for it. So we we have a lot of characters in Houston. Dallas is a very different place. Um, the There's not so much cowboy, I guess, maybe is a better way. You do still get a lot of cowboy stuff in Fort Worth. But Dallas is a little less of the cowboy lawyer. So I, I don't know, I would say like a little more sophisticated, but that makes it sound like you're looking down on Houston. Not at all. It's just a very different type of lawyers in Dallas. So, Houston. <laughs> so you were, so you were commenting on, um, you were commenting on the, the Ken Paxson impeachment trial mm -hmm. as a commentator. I saw some of your commentary. Um, and 
in some ways it was kind of build uh, build as this uh, uh, not by you but build as this sort of heavyweight fight. I mean, obviously you got Ken Paxton, who's you know a powerful political figure. He's yeah. represented by Tony Busby, and I think the other lawyer was uh, representing him was. Uh, a lawyer who's represented Ken Paxson for a while. Um, right. Um, I can't remember what his name is. Yeah. I, yeah. He's from more and, of like the Collin County area, I think. And then on uh, the representing the house managers was, I mean, you're talking Dick about DeGarren. A couple, Dick DeGarren and Rusty Harden. I mean, yeah. you're talking about two legends. I mean, you know, these guys are, you know, go down in the history of lawyers anywhere as, as some of the great lawyers uh, in um, in U.S. history, um, so it, it was interesting because I because I, I do first of all, do you know each of them? I mean, do you know Dick DeGaren and Rusty Harden? And I know uh, Rusty Tony Harden. Harden. I know Rusty Harden. I've never met Dick DeGaren. I obviously know who he is, um, but yeah, Rusty's. Rusty's amazing. I mean, I've heard him speak at so many seminars. He's actually spoke at a seminar for DUI Defense Lawyers Association last year. He's wonderful. He's you Google his career and some of the mm-hmm. work cases that he's been involved with. Same with Dick DeGaren, just absolutely outstanding work. Um, you know, walking people out of the courtroom with what you think is a mountain of evidence, and, and then they end up with a not guilty. I mean, they're they the, are Dick DeGaren's victory in the Texas. Uh, Robert Durst case is still mm-hmm. to this day, I think, one of the all-time just most like head spinning, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, you could almost imagine yeah. the deputies getting up to go, you know, like they assumed he was going to be convicted. They're like, what? Wait, what again? <laughs> he did <laughs> what? They're they're <laughs> fabulous. Um we have our own in Dallas, but you have to understand that the the Austin our Houston Austin area is the Austin choice because remember who's picking the lawyers they're going to go with the Houston lawyers for prosecuting Paxton it made perfect sense and then the North Texas contingent is really not part of any of that except he had I know Paxton has one lawyer that's from there because he's his long-term lawyer and he's from Collin County which is just north of Dallas which is where I have an office and have practiced for a long long time but the it made sense the way they they cho- everybody had their lawyers on either side. You saw a, a wonderful cross section. I mean, Busby's great. He was so perfect, in my opinion, at picking out all of the the same things I was looking at, like just all the holes in mm-hmm. the evidence. They promised you all this, kind of like when prosecutors get up during opening statements and they make all these promises. But then when the evidence starts coming in, you're sitting there going, "Well, we're, what happened to this? What happened to this?" And that's really what happened in this case. I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. If they had some witnesses that they couldn't actually get there, testify about some of the things, but some of their allegations just sort of fell apart. So I, I know that they chose, the managers chose, I mean, had uh, Rusty Harden and, and Dick DeGaren. Um, you know, they aren't traditional prosecutors. Correct. Right? I mean, they're, they're, and I don't know there was a, there was a, a a female that was working with them. Uh, was she a, was she, fabulous? She's yeah, she, she was great. I wish they'd let her do more. I thought she was great. I thought she just looked like she knew the rules of evidence. Was was 
responding in time, uh, didn't get sort of tripped up over, you know, kind of generalities. I thought she was pretty precise. I thought she did a really good job. Um, you know, nature of our business, right? If you win, you don't really ask a lot of questions. And if you lose, and of course you wonder, hey, what, what, could, what could they have done differently? Let me ask you this. So, so is, have you, was that an unusual setting for you to, um, to, to, to be at a table with two others kind of watching a proceeding unfold and offering commentary on it? Um, yeah, but I mean, I usually watch trials and do my own commentary. So it wasn't hard to do. <laughs> I, I was, I think I noticed the same thing that you're talking about though. The fact that it probably would have been better to have tried to bring in either actual prosecutors or someone that just recently left a prosecutor's office and have them do it. it it's very hard to switch sides. Um, you've got these longtime defense attorneys who are used to, for example, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They're used to asking leading questions. And mm -hmm. if someone's watching this podcast, they don't know what a leading question is. That's a, a question that suggests the answer. It's very hard when you're a prosecutor, you don't ask leading questions. You just ask a question and people give you the answer. But what you notice, there were so many objections to leading going on. And there was leading going on because you've got defense attorneys that are not accustomed to, to doing prosecutor direct. So mm -hmm. they or they did it a long time ago and they've forgotten how. And so it's not their style. So it's very hard to go back to asking non-leading questions when that's all you do in your practice. So it was interesting watching that. I, I felt like perhaps if she had done more in the trial, and then there was the um, the very tall gentleman whose name starts with an M and I just forgot what it was, but he had the orange bow tie on when he was first up. He was fabulous too. I would have given him more time to cross or to do some direct on witnesses because he did a really good job. Um. Did you spend, were you spending every day watching that trial and commenting on it, or were you just kind of periodically brought in to do it? Because I knew I was going to be on day eight, I actually watched the entire trial because I didn't want to get in there on day eight and not really know what was going on or how things were going. Um, it was being recorded every day on YouTube. So I would just go in as I had time and, and watch you know, the, the early parts of it. So when, by the time I got there, I was really up to speed on what had been going on and what evidence hadn't been presented that was mm -hmm. alleged. Um, but yeah. you, you know, it's also, I've made this comment several times. It was political theater. It was never a real trial. There was a lot. I mean, we had a judge, so-called judge, that's not even a lawyer. We had, you know, a lot of stuff that happens in a trial that you, the jurors were all vested in the outcome and that's not the way jury trials work so it really wasn't much of a trial it was a lot of theater with a predetermined outcome but it was still interesting and and quite frankly i i think it really exposed a lot of not very nice things about ken paxton that perhaps the voters didn't fully understand before he got reelected the last time um, have you ever been participated in a trial uh, something similar to that like a uh uh, a contempt case or something that had a real political component to it, even if it was in a traditional courtroom where outside forces seemed to, you know, weigh heavily on what everyone was doing? Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, we elect our judges in Texas and it is partisan. 
So you've got counties in Texas where all the judges are Republican. You've got counties in Texas where all the judges are Democrats. And I've been in a trial before where the judge is a Democrat and is up for reelection. And the prosecutor on the other side of the case is running for head of the Democratic Party for that county at the time of the trial. So did it impact rulings in that case? You bet it did. There's no question. Uh, the yeah, politics, you have to be aware of the politics of, of the county you're in. For sure, that can often play a role. We had rulings Amazing. that absolutely contrary to the law without any question, but that's the way the judge ruled. So, um, so let me, it's, uh, you know, I could ask you about Texas, you know, Texas justice and the legal system for, you know, um, uh, for hours, but, you know, I don't want to take up that much time of, of yours and you probably got a seminar to get to. Let me ask you this. Um, if I had to ask you for uh, one person who you think is um, uh, the, the, the best cross-examiner um, that you've ever seen, um, who do you, who, oh, who do you think so, it is? So many. And we'll, and we'll, and we'll, and of course you're allowed to say yourself, you're, you could say yourself, but besides yourself, who's the best cross-examiner you've ever seen? Um, there's an attorney here in Dallas by the name of John Cook, who I mentioned earlier. He's pretty amazing at cross-examination. I, I think I do a great job. I mean, I do, but um, his style is a little bit more what we were talking about with the Houston lawyers was a little bit more cowboy style. He's actually from Alabama and he pulls out this whole Alabama shtick when he is cross-examining that is extremely effective. And, you know, he, he'll say things like, you know, I'm just, I'm just all Alabama boy. You're going to have to explain that to me. And, and stuff like <laughs> that. he folksies to the nth degree. Um, and then another, there's another attorney in Dallas by the name of David Burroughs, who's, who's a legend. He's a legend in Texas. He's at one point, he was the winningest DWI trial lawyer in the state. Um, probably the winningest trial lawyer actually. And he is a very, I call it the gentleman cross. He's so smooth and so nice. And it's just this sort of Southern gentleman cross-examination that is incredibly effective. And I, I've accused him before of hypnotizing jurors because I think he's just the way he speaks and his voice. I think he hypnotizes them into voting not guilty on guilty cases. So he's he's very fabulous. He I send him up here. I'll send tell you what I'll I tell young lawyers, I go, come watch us in trial. If you see John Cook in trial, there's another lawyer named Doug Wilder. If you can see Doug Wilder, because he does a perfect McCarthy cross. Go watch Doug Wilder and do a cross. Go watch David Burroughs do a cross-examination in a trial, and you will be ready to try any case. I think that the that the pandemic and shelter in place and the shutdown of courts and the lack of in-person sort of proceedings for a couple of years really created a, a, a lack of, of opportunity for young lawyers who were constantly in the courthouse, prosecutors and young lawyers. That's how I learned. You know, I would just take a bunch of files and walk over to a courtroom where I had a, when I was a young prosecutor, I was assigned to a courtroom and I was hungry to get every case I could. And even if they were up against lawyers such as yourself, I mean, I was just like, sure. I, no one's going to expect me to win an objection. If I win too, I'm, you know, I'm a, and I watched and I'm like, man, this is, these folks are awesome. 
right? That's how you, that's how you learn. And when there weren't live trials and there weren't for some time here in Michigan, I think it, I think young lawyers suffered because. Absolutely. We weren't shut down as long as y'all were, honestly. I mean, we, we were trying cases again, fairly quickly. We had some counties in Texas that never thought COVID was a thing. So they didn't care about COVID. Um, but the, you learn by doing. I also think that a lot of times you have cases and it just depends on the circumstances of the case where you don't really have anything to lose by going to trial and you should go to trial then because you never know what's going to happen. Trials are like living beings. Things can fall apart on the state's case that you weren't expecting. They weren't expecting. And I tried a sex case one time where my, the child victim looked around the room and couldn't identify my client. And I will say my client was the only African-American person in the courtroom mm. and the, and the state could not get the kid to ID him. And we got a not guilty on the case. I asked no questions. <laughs> I said, <laughs> yeah. I don't really have any questions. Um, no. So things, but it looked on paper, like a really great case for the state, but yeah. it, it wasn't. You also learn when you lose, when you try something and it doesn't work, or you speak to jurors after a trial and say, we really ruled or held this way because of X. And you'll be like, okay, now I know. Now, next time I'm not going to do that. Whereas if you're not trying anything, you're only trying one case every year, you're not learning. You're not getting that feedback. You're not learning to think on your feet. You're not learning. So even if they're not your cases, volunteer to go sit with another attorney on their case. Help them. You know, just sit, Great advice. Sit, share, take notes. Great advice. Great advice. Andrew, let me leave you with uh, this. So if there's one person anywhere, anywhere in the world that you could choose to cross-examine and, and you know, who would it be and why? Oh, who would I love to cross-examine? I would really right now today like to cross-examine Ken Paxton. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would um, I could have, have a great time cross-examining Ken Paxton. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. So, so tell us how people can find you website. Um, give us your, you know, your, what your social media presence. And uh, if someone has any questions about your cases or about you, or wants to reach out for whatever reason, um, I want them to be able to do that. So I'm um, more uh, easy to find um, Deandra Grant law. I mean, I've got a website, obviously it's the Texas DWI site or deandragrantlaw.com. And then we have a ton of Facebook pages. So if you put my name into Facebook, you're going to find it. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram, just my name. And then we have a TikTok channel that I actually don't run. What I have someone that does it, but we have tons of videos on TikTok that I think are pretty informative. I imagine you're going to get a number of people that will reach out because there are a lot of lawyers and others who are probably looking for... Um, you know, just to, to tap into your resources about um, in the, the stuff that you do so well. I, I think that that's just a, they, there are a whole host of lawyers out there that wouldn't know, not because of any fault of your own, they just wouldn't have had a chance to hear you for the time that you've been talking and to hear you dialogue with someone that they maybe know, which in this case is, is me or have heard me before. And so I'm so glad that I've had the chance to actually expose them, both people who aren't lawyers and just interested in this stuff and lawyers. I'm a trial junkie. I love this stuff. Um, I'm so glad that I had the chance to, to, and that you took the time to come on the podcast because it's, 
it's, you know, just having a chance to talk to you, I can just see you just quietly, just very politely, just with that smile you have on right now, just totally tearing apart some witness on the witness stand. And he didn't even know he's getting torn apart. He feels like he's just getting like, what's going on here? My limbs are coming off. And, <laughs> but, and you're just being polite about it. I can just see it. I can, I can feel it. And I can see it happening. Um, and that's, well, I, uh, I will tell you, cause I know you said you liked oral stories. I, w- I was walking through a courtroom one day or trying to get in a courtroom. And I was carrying a bunch of stuff. I, I guess I must've been going to trial and there was a young police officer standing there and he goes, let me get the door for you. And I said, thank you. He opened the door and I said, um, how are you today? And he goes, well, I'm not getting cross-examined by you, Miss Grant. So I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> but I will throw this out for lawyers that may be watching good. us that, that follow you. If you're interested in science and learning more about science, and I'm talking about for drug cases, DWI cases, whatever, you might want to look at Axion Lab program, which is where I'm on the faculty um, in Chicago. And it's a fabulous program. It's put on by Axion Labs and the American Chemical Society. And you can learn all about gas chromatography, drug analysis, LCMS, GCMS, drug to driving, everything through that program. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me and I'll I'll get you all the data. And I actually took part in, I and um, uh, Colin Daniels, who he and I worked together in my firm, we both actually took part in that class for forensic um gc uh, gc which mm-hmm. was uh which was amazing fascinating so really great 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 program so right great program come back so, all right <laughs> so beyond a grant i'm so glad that you had the chance to join us um this is the killer cross-examination podcast uh, again bringing you you know, I'm a trial junkie. I, this is like a fantasy camp for me, talking to some of the greatest travelers in the country, and you're certainly one of them. Uh, and I'm so thrilled that you agreed to join me and take time out of your schedule. Uh, from I, I know it is a busy schedule and a seminar you're about to about to, to lead. So thank you so 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 much. And people should tune in, subscribe, like, hit the like button, share. This is a great podcast and a great interview. Thanks so much. Bye bye.